Rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala amma ba'd <coughs> So I had mentioned about this book last week and I mentioned that there are certain places that we do ziyarah called ziyarah we make ziyarah of haramain sharifain we make ziyarah of you know very sacred places we make ziyarah of the awliya and the salihin and then there's the ziyarah of these books this is one of the in my opinion it's one of the wonders of the world for those who uh, are in the kind of the material world they don't understand how this can be one of the wonders of the world but like this in Islamic civilization we have many wonders of the world what makes this one of the wonders and the ajaib ajaib amazing wonder is that Imam Al-Bayhaqi rahimahullah he authored this book called Shu'abul Iman and this this is in 12 volumes actually it's 13 I said 12 this is 13 volumes I don't think that I don't think it's such large font it's very normal font it has some explanation in it but this 12 volume book is a commentary of one hadith of the Prophet that is what I'm saying what's the amazing thing about this is that this people talk about what's hadith you know and what did these scholars do and what is hadith and this confusion and this darkness and in reality it breaks my heart to say this that we just when you don't understand something you should seek to understand it you should learn you should seek to understand you should go to the furthest extent to attain knowledge about that subject this is what a truly sincere person does the person who in his heart has crookedness then what do they do a question comes in their mind a doubt comes in their mind and out of their gullibility and their foolishness they automatically deny everything this is a sign of the disease of the heart this is not a sincere person I have a question I had a question about Hinduism and Buddhism I actually will go to Hindus and actually go to Buddhists to find my question you don't just write it off really if you're truly sincere about anything it might be I know my religion is haq I'm not insecure about that but if I want to make a proper judgment about something I should properly sincerely seek to learn and clarify my misunderstanding Muslims don't do that I don't know what's going on what 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 madness and insanity has crept into our brains that a single doubt comes in their mind about hadith I don't believe in hadith hadith cannot be trusted or I don't believe it. let me let me let me guide you on this okay the munkir of a hadith the munkir of hadith hadith as a concept the rejecter of a hadith is the rejecter of the Prophet Munkir hadith, munkir paygumbaras. The munkir, the rejecter of a hadith, 
is a rejecter of the Prophet. The rejecter of the Prophet is the rejecter of Allah. The rejecter of Allah is a pakka kafir. So understand this. There should be no fluff. There should be no like beating around the bush about this mas'ala. Hadith is our deen. Hadith is our religion. Hadith is our core. The sunnah is our core. The rejecter of hadith is a rejecter of the prophet. The rejecter of the prophet is automatically rejecter of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The rejecter of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know what that is. Shaitan is not going to tell you, don't, don't believe in Islam, become a kafir. He tells you, he goes, he goes, around, he goes around this way. You could grab it like this, or you could grab it like this. Na mega ke kafir show. Mega munkir hadith show. Munkir hadith ko kafir nees. Kafir as munkir hadith. Mutlak kafir. Pukhta kafir as. The rejecter of hadith is rejecter of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How do you believe in the Prophet? How do you obey the Prophet? Allah has commanded us, Atiullah wa atiyur rasul. Obey Allah and obey the rasul. How do you obey the rasul? How can you obey the Rasul? How will you understand the Qur'an? So many verses of the Qur'an you will never understand without hadith. Without having a background about what that is. All of Surah Al-Anfal. You see we've been doing in Tafsir, Surah Al-Anfal, it's about the battle of Badr. How will you know what is going on in Surah Al-Anfal if you don't have the background? So in essence, I want everybody to understand this. We are followers of Qur'an. I think some of, the, some of the rejectors of hadith, they are the most hardcore lovers of the Qur'an. But they, in, in this rejecting of hadith, they are actually directly rejecting and throwing the Qur'an in the garbage. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say it. In their rejecting of hadith, they are hundreds of ayat of the Qur'an, they are completely disregarding. What are you going to do about Atiyullah and Atiyur Rasul? What are you going to do about that? What are you going to do about aqimu salata wa atu zakata? What are you going to do? Man yuti'ir rasoola faqad ata' Allah. He obeys the messenger has indeed obeyed Allah. What are you going to do with that? Ma atakum ar-rasool fakhudhuhu wa ma nahakum anhu fantahu. That which the prophet gives you take and that which the prophet forbids you stay away from. What are you going to do with that? Where are you running away with these with these ayat? You say you are a follower of the Quran but you follow nothing of the Quran. And as the Jewish rabbi said, you cannot change Islam unless you take away hadith from them. When you have taken away the sunnah and the hadith, then you can change Islam according to any interpretation you want. That's the key. If you have understood this, you have understood the whole movement against hadith. This movement against the hadith. This attack Against the hadith, this is basically the bottom line. The bottom line is, I cannot interpret a specific verse of the Quran according to the way that I want it. Do you know why? It's because there's a hadith about that ayah. There's a sababun nuzul that explains that ayah. There's a reason for the revelation of that ayah. And I can't then interpret it the way that I want. You see what I'm saying? About alcohol. There's many verses about alcohol in the Qur'an. I can't not take those verses face value 
because of the fact that it has a historical hadith sunnah based context. The, there's three verses about alcohol in the Quran. The context of those verses is in the sunnah. They were revealed at a specific time for a particular incident and for a particular situation. And if you just remove that and say, we don't believe in it, then what? Then you have these verses floating around that you can take in any way that you want. For example, I'll give you an example from the Quran. I'll give this example for you from the Quran. Allah Ta'ala says, La taqrabu salata wa antum sukara. Don't come to the prayer while you are drunk. Don't come to the prayer while you're in a state of drunkenness. So we know that this verse was abrogated by another verse. The long ayah. And the abrogation of that, how it became abrogated is in the sunnah. The sunnah clarifies that this is nasikh, this is mansukh. This ayah is abrogator, and that, it, therefore it made that other verse an abrogation. When you don't believe in the sunnah, when you don't have a usul, you don't have principles of hadith, you don't have principles of tafsir, you don't have usul din you have nothing, you've taken away 1,400 years of scholarship, negated it, and said, I, I understand the Qur'an the way I want to understand the Qur'an. All these mullahs, they made this up. The mullahs made it up. Right? The mullahs made it up, but now, mashallah, 1400 years later, congratulations, Jibreel has arrived at your doorstep to explain to you the real meanings of the Qur'an that people did not understand for 1300 years. That's amazing. To me, that's, <laughs> to me, that's more shocking. To me, that's more gustakh and that's more blasphemous than what the 1300 years of mullahs have done. That's worse than what the mullahs have done. You understand? That for 1400 years, nobody understood the religion. Only you understood the religion. This is a kamal. This is like subhanallah. Mojiza. That for 13, 1400 years, nobody understood the religion properly. This is greater calamity than what you accuse the mullahs of doing. It's a greater calamity. It's a greater tragedy. Because at least the mullahs, they were engaged and in understanding throughout the centuries, they were saying qala Allah and qala Rasul and passing these views and these, you know, these understandings and these perspectives throughout the centuries. Where were you? Where was your, your folk? Where were your people? What, what, you know, what tree did you fall out of? Literally, they just fall, fell out of some tree and just started talking and saying that this is what the Quran means. Oh Muslims, I beg of you, O oh Muslims, ما بارتون أزور ميكرم إقا أحمق نباشين إقا دار لقا أحمقهم إقا حماقات لقا يوم يك حد دارا حماقاتهم يك حد دارا Really, حماقات يك حد دارا but, but with, with our people, subhanallah, foolishness has no bounds How you believe these people? 
Come and let, let me teach you what the religion has, what the religion means. 1400 years later. You understand what I'm saying? This is a, there's a limit. You know, somebody, I, I don't care who it is, you know, you, you, you see even in like karate, you know, you see these people, they're like totally fake karate masters. I mean, even you have an akal, you know, that you look at this person, he doesn't, well, this, is a, this is ridiculous what this person is doing. Or these fake gurus. Like, you don't need to be part of the religion to understand how fake this guy is. You don't need to know karate to actually see how fake this person is. He's just taking people for a ride. A complete, you know, masquerading something that he, he thinks he understands. Similarly, in our deen, there's a whole, like, movement. And I will tell you that the bottom line and the objective of this movement is one thing is so that you be able to interpret the religion according to anything that you feel like it. You want LBGT? No problem. Just take away the sunnah and the hadith, you'll make it possible. You can, you can interpret these verses any way that you want. Anything can come. Transgender, LBGT, all the other filth and garbage that's out there, you can just, just fit it in. Because there's no sunnah, there's no hadith, there's no corpus of anything that will be, explain this. So therefore, everybody can explain it according to their own desire. I told you guys I was at an MSA in 1997 when I was in, that's a long time ago, when I was in college. We were in an MSA. So first thing I came in MSA, like, well, my understanding of Islam is this. What's your understanding of Islam? I think Islam is love. Okay, what about you? I think Islam is this. I think Islam is that. Everybody had that. I said, wait, wait, wait a minute. We don't have a right to define Islam. Islam is already defined. The Prophet defined this for us. And this is what I was talking about. That what is Islam? Who has a right to define it? The Prophet ﷺ himself says, Alaykum bi sunnati. Fa'innakum man ya'ish minkum ba'di fasayara ikhtilafan kathira. Those amongst you who will live after me, you're going to see a lot of. Differences, you're going to see a lot of ajeeb things. You're going to see a lot of weird things. فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي So when you're going to see all of these differences of opinion and all these, all these craziness, فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي وَسُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءِ الرَّاشِدِينَ الْمَهْدِيِّينَ مِنْ بَعْدِي عَدُّوا عَلَيْهَا بِالنَّوَاجِذِ so therefore, when you're going to see all this craziness and all this differences of opinion and madness, then follow my sunnah. And the sunnah of my, 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 my four rightly guided khalifs that will come after me. Hold on to it with your back molars. Anything that is rooted in that. I say, oh, but what about this Shafi'i and this Maliki and this Hanafi and this Hanbali? This also, all four of them are rooted in the sunnah. Every single one of them that have their dalils, and they have their proofs, and they have their evidences, they go back to the ahadith. So their ikhtilaf that exists, it's in their difference of understanding within the hadith. And that existed amongst the companions as well. So it's not that difference which is talking about. It's the confusion. It's a confusion that arises from not implementing the sunnah. Not the academic differences of what is the preferable way to do something from the sunnah. Anyways, with that being said, this... Like I said, this, why I like to have this in front of you so that you can see it, make ziyara of this. One of the wonders of the world. That how much the scholars made i'tina' 
of the science of hadith, how much they made effort, how much they put in their life and they put in their time to understand the hadith of the Prophet, to preserve the hadith of the Prophet. This is Imam al-Bayhaqi's Shu'ab al-Iman. 13 volumes. Forget writing the book. People alive today will never read the book. A person who reads this, this is like one of those million dollar challenges, right? I give you a million dollars. You know those YouTube YouTubers? Like, I'll give you a million dollars if you stand in the circle for like 10 days or something like that, right? Like, this is one of those challenges. Like, I'll give you a million dollars if you can read this book. Many people in this ummah, he wrote this book. Many people in this ummah will never read this book. Scholars included. Hafiz Samir Rahman, am I right or wrong? Ulama, scholars included, will never get the tawfiq or the time. And he wrote this. And this is one of the books he wrote. I'm, I'm serious. Who these people were? I had mentioned last week. Kana yasrudu sawm, Imam al-Bayhaqi rahimahullah. He was a constant fast. Mukhtasar al-Quduri, or Hidayah uh, al-Marghinani, uh, it took him probably 12 years to write the book. The entire 12 years in which he was writing the book, he was in a state of fasting. In such a way that his family didn't even know that he was fasting. This is how these books were written in Islam. And we have a right to criticize who these people are. You are not the dust in the nostril of their donkey. You're not the dust in the nostril of their donkey, of Imam al-Marghinani. That for 12 years in a state of fasting, that his family doesn't even know he's in a state of fasting. Such a book was never written like the Hidayah. I'm talking about Hidayah, it's a four-volume book, not this book. This is 13 volumes. In the whole time that it took him to write this, he was in a state of fasting. This, this is our tradition. These were our people. How are you coming in this time and rejecting these human beings? Who are you? Can't even read the names of the surahs of the Quran. What was the akhlaq of this human being? What was the taqwa of this human being? What was the ilm of this human being? That in one, the one hadith of the Prophet, he wrote 12 volume commentary of it. This whole 13 volumes is the commentary of one hadith. And that hadith is connected to the hadith we're going to read today. Why I'm getting so emotional? Because it's something to become emotional about. It's heartbreaking. It's a tragedy. Don't fall into this. If I'm saying anything wrong, anybody here has a right to stand up and say, what you're saying is wrong. What, what, what part of this do we not understand? That we had such people in this ummah that preserved the deen to such an extent. That one hadith of the Prophet was explained in 13 volumes. I can't even explain that hadith in 13 minutes. He explained it in 13 volumes. Probably took him 10 years or so to write it. I can't explain it in 13 minutes. I won't have anything to say about it. My dear brothers and sisters, all of, this, all of this ranting and venting of mine is that we appreciate our tradition. Don't fall into this. The person who's talking in front of you, understand who is this person. For God's sake, for the sake of Allah, I, I beg of you that the person who's talking at least ask them, okay, what is your qualification that you're speaking about hadith? Are you a mutakhassis fil hadith? We have the one who's sitting here in front of you, I don't like to say this. The one who's sitting in front of you, 
I have taught hadith. I have learned hadith. I have ijazah of hadith that goes back to the scholars. I have ijazah of hadith to this author, to Imam Bayhaqi, to this book that I'm talking about, this book that's in front of me. We have ijazat, license permission, that takes us back to the author of the book himself. The one who's sitting and he's rejecting, maybe one of the reasons why he's rejecting is because he never found an answer to his questions. He never took the opportunity to go and learn sincerely from somebody and say, these hadith are a bit confusing. Can somebody who is an expert in hadith explain this to me? But because of that person's arrogance, because of that person's himself is in sin, he himself doesn't practice Islam or pray Salat or fast in the month of Ramadan. That person himself doesn't fast or pray and he's sitting behind the television and he's giving a dars of hadith how, how Bukhari is uh, uh, something that nobody should even believe in. Muslims shouldn't believe in Bukhari. Like I said, the, 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 the dust in the nostril of the donkey of Imam Bukhari is more superior than you and your entire progeny. And this is a reality. If you think about it deeply, go home, think about it, you'll see what I'm saying is not wrong. But the point here is, is that the efforts that these scholars made, the work that they had done, this is something for us that at least if we're not going to read it, we appreciate it. And we value it. And we understand that subhanAllah, like Imam al-Busayri said, right? Bushra lana ma'ashar al-Islami inna lana. مِنَ الْعِنَايَةِ رُكْنًا غَيْرُ مُنْهَدِمِ بُشْرَى لَنَا مَعْشَرَ الْإِسْلَامِ إِنَّ لَنَا Imam Abu Sayyidi says, he says, glad tidings to us, the people of Islam. Verily, we have such a pillar, رُكْنًا غَيْرُ مُنْهَدِمِ that will, can never be demolished by, by, the, by, the, by the ages and the passing of time. We have such this sunnah that will never be demolished. It's a rukn. رُكْنًا غَيْرَ مُنْهَدِمِ such a rukun we have of the sunnah, of the connection to the Prophet ﷺ, this can never be demolished. No one in the entire, till the day of judgment, it cannot demolish it. لا يزالون من أمتي طائفة على الحق لا يضرهم من خلفهم ولا من لا يضرهم من خذلهم ولا من خالفهم حتى يأتي أمر الله. This is the promise of the Prophet ﷺ. لا يزال من أمتي طائفة على الحق they will be a group from my ummah, a ta'ifa. From my ummah, they will be on the haq. La yadurruhum man khadalahum, wa la man khalafahum. They will not be harmed by those who try to dishonor them, not those who, or, or those who will go against them. Hatta ya'tiya amrullah until the day of judgment comes. Imam al-Nawi says, hum ashabul hadith. Others say other things. Imam Nawi says, who are these people? They are the people who are the preservers of the hadith. Till the day of judgment, this sunnah has to remain. Because if the Qur'an is going to remain till the day of judgment, then the sunnah has to remain. Everybody, does everybody believe that as a Muslim? That the Qur'an, it remains till the day of judgment. No other Qur'an is coming, or is there another Qur'an coming? Unless anybody else is Qadiani over here. Ghulam Ahmad Qadiani came and, and said, you know, I'm from Lahore. And Wahi was revealed to me just as Wahi was revealed to Muhammad in Arabia. Wahi was revealed in Punjabi language. Unless, unless that, that is that person, but normal Muslims, Muslims believe that there is no more wahi that is going to come. This Qur'an will be preserved till the day of judgment. This Qur'an abrogated all the other previous revelations. This will remain till the day of judgment, right? 
So if the Qur'an is to remain till the day of judgment, then that which explains the Qur'an has to also be preserved till the day of judgment. Otherwise, that means what? That the Qur'an remains, but the, nobody understands what it is really. That can't make sense. That the Qur'an remains, but nobody understands what it means. The Qur'an remains, but it's hieroglyphics. It's possible? Like the Egyptian hieroglyphics. There's only like one person, three people in the world, like right, right, one in Harvard University, another one is like Egyptology, like, you know, it's like this special uh, department. Like hardly anybody even like, there's only five, ten people in the whole world that can actually decipher what the Egyptians wrote. Their language is like in birds, and there's a cat, the cat is like C, and then there's a bird that's a B. And like there's only a few people in the world that actually knew this, what this language is. Is that what the Quran is? That the Quran is there, it's preserved, but no, the Quran is preserved. The same, the, the rejectors of the hadith, the Quran is preserved. The Quran is preserved. Yeah, the Quran is preserved, but nobody knows what it means. Tell me this ayah. What is the meaning of this ayah? They won't be able to tell you. See, that one interesting thing about the Qurani people is that they don't really know how to read the Quran. This is an interesting thing about them. They just believe in this concept of the Quran being preserved. Because actually, if you read it, actually read it, they'll be like, wait a minute, but what does that mean? Okay, what is, how, zakat, how does, what, is, what is zakat really? So if I like drive into San Francisco, there's a homeless guy and I just give him like 25 cents, I fulfilled my zakat? Well, yeah, you could if you interpret it that way, unless you have the sunnah and the sunnah explains what is zakat. Otherwise, if you don't have the sunnah or the hadith, then you could just give your zakat to just anybody on the street. You fulfilled the zakat. So these hadith and this tradition and how it has been preserved is something that we should have so much respect for and honor for. Otherwise, literally, if you're going to allow these doubts to overtake you and you don't go to an expert to answer these questions, right? you're going to increase in doubt and disappreciate everything that these mashayikh and these ulama did for us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless them and may Allah ta'ala elevate their ranks. With that being said, the hadith, which we actually, we skipped to hadith and I went ahead, but we'll go back. It's hadith number 20. An Abi Mas'ud al-Uqbat ibn Amir al-Ansari al-Badri radiyallahu anhu qal قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إنما إن مما أدرك الناس من كلام النبوة الأولى إذا لم تستحي فصنع ما شئت رواه البخاري أبو مسعود قبط بن عمر الأنصاري البدري رضي الله عنه قال the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم قبط بن عمر he narrates that the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم said that from amongst the teachings of the early messengers for amongst the early teachings of prophethood was this. That if you don't have shame, then do whatever you want to do. And with that being said, this hadith in and of itself is from amongst the Jawami al Kalim. Jawami al Kalim is one of the miracles of the Prophet. And this book is an example of it is the comprehensiveness of speech. The conciseness of speech and the comprehensiveness of speech. The Prophet والسلام, in one hadith says, Utitu Jawami al Kalim. Utitu Jawami al Kalim. I was bestowed the comprehensiveness and conciseness of speech. In other words, 
the few words of the Prophet ﷺ had tremendous meanings. And an example of this is this book. I'm glad I have this with me. I can constantly point to this. I talked about this in many, many uh, bayans. Allah reward Khidr. He told me, bring the book today. You keep talking about it. Bring it. So I brought this. I keep this at home. And whenever I get lazy, I come and I look at this book. This, my, this, looking at this book motivate. I have this at home. I don't keep it in this library. I keep it in my library at home. And I put it uh, there. And when I get lazy to do anything, I come and I look at this book. And I say, oh, lazy bum, there was people like this who wrote the book. You can't even read the book. What are you doing? What have you done? We really have not done anything. So from amongst the comprehensiveness of speech is that one hadith can be explained with such voluminous detail as you can see before yourself here. This is the meaning of Jawami al This is how the words of the Prophet was a miracle. This is why from, from amongst his mu'jizat, was his kalam, was his speech, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. His speech and his hadith is actually his mu'jizah. And that's why it's scary. The people who are rejectors of hadith, they're actually rejecting a mu'jizah of the Prophet. It's very sad. It's scary. Anyone who studies hadith, you will see it is a mu'jizah. This is a mu'jizah to me. I don't know. If anybody can show me in any tradition, and I would like to know, maybe it's possible somebody wrote 10 volumes on Socrates, you know, or, you know, something that Shakespeare said, and they wrote 10 volumes. Maybe, Hafiz Samir Rahman, have you seen something like that? Like maybe one word of Shakespeare? No, I'm saying it could be a possibility. Maybe I'm wrong. Because it's not necessary that, okay, only, it was only the, I mean, I've spoken about this before. That it was only the prophet that one of his statements was somebody wrote 13 volumes about it. Maybe it could be somebody else. Maybe it could be, you know, some Jewish, uh, uh, you know, literature. Some of the words, of, the words of Jesus Christ or the words of Moses. It could be. I don't know. But I haven't seen it. Huh? Maybe, maybe one volume. You're right. Actually, I, 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 I saw a book. It's called um, The Gentle and Lowly. Gentle and Lowly. It's about the statement of Jesus, peace be upon him, which he said, my heart is gentle and lowly. And this person wrote about a 50-page book on it. He wrote 50 pages. It's a, it's a modern Christian. So I'm saying I'm also searching. I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm denying that people could do this. But in this time, the book is called Gentle and Lowly. And it's a statement of Isa alayhi salam where he said, he said, verily my heart is gentle and lowly. All the prophets were beloved to us. Truly his heart was a blessed heart, the heart of Isa But this person wrote like a 50-page book on this statement of Jesus. It's interesting. But my point is, is like I haven't found anything like this. So this hadith is from amongst the Jawami'ul Kalim. Jawami'ul Kalim meaning that the Prophet's speech was very concise, but it was very filled with meaning. So much meaning that the mu'jizah was fulfilled in his ummah. Many of the scholars say that one of the mu'jizat of the Prophet ﷺ is the scholars of his ummah. The scholars of his ummah is part of the prophetic miracle. That in his ummah, he says, ummati ka anbiya'i bani Israel." The ulama 
of the ummah of the Prophet are like the Anbiya of Bani Israel. The ulama of the ummah of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, are like the Anbiya of Bani Israel. Where do you find this? Where can you get knowledge and hikmah and wisdom like Imam Al-Ghazali, Imam Al-Nawawi, Imam Al-Bayhaqi, Imam Abu Hanifa, Imam Shafi'i, Malik, Ahmad, it's just mind-boggling. So this hadith is telling us that from amongst, I said that the 40 hadith of Imam Nawawi that we're reading, Imam Nawawi brings all of those hadith which are alayhi madarul Islam. Those are hadith that Islam revolve around these tenets. Islam revolves around these concepts. So haya is one of those concepts which Islam revolves around it. If you take away haya, you have taken away a very, very important tenet, a very important fundamental of Islam. And that is why in another hadith, the Prophet says, إِنَّ لِكُلِّ دِينٍ خُلُقٍ إِنَّ لِكُلِّ دِينٍ خُلُقٍ وَخُلُقُ الْإِسْلَامِ الْحَيَاءِ أو كما قال عليه الصلاة والسلام إِنَّ لِكُلِّ دِينٍ خُلُقٍ وَخُلُقُ الْإِسْلَامِ الْحَيَاءِ For every religion, there is a specific salient feature, a quality, an attribute. Like you can say in Christianity, you'll find tremendous asceticism. Is that not so? Like this humility, asceticism, pride and poverty. This, is, this was the way of Isa alayhi salam. Zuhud, rahbaniyyah. As Allah Ta'ala says, وَرَهْبَانِيَةٍ ابْتَدَعُوهَا مَا كَتَبْنَاهَا عَلَيْهِمْ They had this asceticism. They had this zuhud, this austerity, this poverty, this meekness. Right? That was a salient feature of Christianity. Or you could say of the tradition of Isa alayhi salam. Humility and poverty. So what was the salient features? What is the khuluq of Islam? Al-haya. Modesty. And I, 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 you know, actually, if you go deeper into this, there's a whole discussion on this as well. It's very, very deep. That the khuluq, this attribute of Islam, right now in the, on the planet, on the planet, the last frontier of shamelessness, who they're working on, the last frontier where this pornographic society and this shameless and immodest society, the last frontier is Muslim countries. How can we get shamelessness in these countries? Because these Muslim countries are the last remaining people who carried haya. In this country, in the 50s and the 60s, shows like, you know, TV shows would not portray a man and a woman sleeping in the same bed. They would have one bed here and another bed there and they would have a nightstand right between both beds so that when they have that one bed you do not you don't have an imagination or tasawwur of two people sleeping in the same bed this was in america in the 1950s and 60s look at these old shows if you see any of these old shows they will not show right the bed of a husband and wife and these are husband and wife on the show they will not show the bed of a husband and wife actually one bed one king-size bed or a queen-size bed, they wouldn't show it. That was the extent. It's gone. It's going. And the last frontier, where everywhere modesty was destroyed, Muslim countries and Muslim peoples. So understand how valuable this is. 
understand how precious this is, that this is coming into our countries, this is coming into our lands, this is coming into our communities. Alhamdulillah for the blessing of our sisters, mashallah, that are the flag bearers of this quality of haya. Imagine that Mary, the mother of Isa is worshipped as an icon. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is worshipped as an icon called the Virgin Mary. A woman who is never depicted without a hijab. Ever, never, ever. I, have anybody seen any depiction of Mary? Not talking about fake de depictions of postmodern era. You'll, you'll, you have showing Isa salam and showing the prophets in the worst way. I'm talking about pre-modern depictions of uh, Mary without a hijab. You won't find it. Complete sanctity and modesty and haya and purity. And they, are, they worship that icon because it is such a great thing. That's why haya is such a powerful thing. It is such an honorable thing. It is such a blessed thing that there's nothing more honorable than that. That it turns a human being to something so precious. It gives so much value to a human being. And you take away that haya and that shame and that modesty and what does it do? That same human being that was so precious becomes like, right? Something so cheap and completely worthless completely cheap and worthless that thing which was made so precious just by the hijab just by that modest clothing that mystery that secret now women are walking with they're covered but they're naked it's a hadith of the prophet the Prophet said that a day will come upon mankind that the women will be they will be wearing clothes but they will be naked they will attract men to themselves and they'll be ready to give themselves to men completely devalues a human being to nothing there is no mystery and honor and, 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 and there is a great attraction in that mystery. There is no more. There was once a time that existed. It was called romance. Nobody knows even what that means anymore. It's just sex now. There is no such thing as romance. There is no such thing as this mystery of love and you fall in love and there is something that you withhold and you hope for till you become married and you don't know about and you come to know and it's something very special ah to hell with that give it to me right now instant satisfaction instant gratification want it right now what is this cheap type of like animals become like donkeys and 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 and, and dogs and animals this is what it's become what that that valuable that value that that honor this is what haya gives That the madar of Islam revolves around it. Because in reality, what is it in In another hadith, the Prophet says, Haya is all of deen. Because what is the reality of Haya? They are prohibitions and commandments. 
how do we say that haya is all of deen? Haya is something that a feeling that you feel guilt of not doing it or doing it. So Islam is made up of what? Imtithalul awamir wajtinabun nawahi. Is it true? Somebody might ask, how is haya all of deen? Because this hadith here narrated by Tabarani, it says, Al-haya'u huwad deenu kullu. Haya is complete deen. All of deen is, is shame. How is this? It's because, what do we have? Deen is two things. Awamir, nawahi. Commandments and prohibitions. If you don't have haya and shame, you won't stay away from the prohibitions. Bihaya just does whatever he feels like. Right? That's what the hadith says. If you, don't, if you don't feel ashamed, then do whatever you want to do. And the Prophet said this in a threatening manner. It's not like command. Al-amru lil-wujub. It's al-amru lil-tahdeed. Fi hadhihi al-mas'ala laysa al-amru lil-wujub. Ida lam tastahi fasna ma shi't. Hakada amarana al-nabiyu sallallahu if you, don't, if, you, if, if you don't have any shame, go do whatever you want to do. Oh, okay, thank you. No, this is a threat, right? Like a father says to his son, what? Then go ahead and do whatever you want to do. I don't care. Oh, okay. That doesn't mean go do it. That means, oh my God, my father said, then go and do it. I can't, I can't do whatever I want to do. It's a threat. It's a figure of speech. And Mullah Liqari, the, the, the commentary that we're using here, Mullah Liqari then explains it further. But the point here is, you have awamir, you have nawahi. If you don't feel ashamed, then you don't care that Allah prohibited alcohol. I don't care. You don't care that Allah prohibited pork. You don't care that Allah commanded you to pray. You don't care that Allah commanded you zakat. The shame in your heart. How can I not do this? And how can I do this? Is it not? So in reality, when you look at it from this perspective, the perspective that this shame in the sight of God that how can I do what God has prohibited me? This is shameful. I'm ashamed to do what God has prohibited me. And I'm ashamed to not do what God has commanded me. Does that make sense? In this manner, al-haya'u huwa deenu kullu. In this manner, haya is complete deen. Faimtum? There's another haya, which is al-haya'ul madhmum. Haya that is not acceptable haya. Haya that holds a person back from asking. So remember what we were talking about? Haya that makes you feel bad that Allah has commanded me this and I, I haven't done it. I have to do it because Allah commanded me. I feel ashamed that I don't do it. Or Allah prohibited me this, how can I do what Allah has prohibited, right? This is good shame. This is good shame. Al-haya'ul mahmud. Praiseworthy shame. And then there's blameworthy shame. Shame that is blameworthy. Al-haya'ul madhmum. What is that shame which is blameworthy? We're going to come here now. What does it say? وَإِنَّ مِنَ الْحَيَاءِ مَا يَمْنَعُ الْعِلْمَ وَالْرِزْقِ there is of shame that which holds a person back from knowledge and from sustenance. And how is that? Yani al-haya min al-nas, shame, being constantly ashamed of people, being constantly afraid, being constantly ashamed. 
you know? Oh, what if I ask that question? If I ask the sheikh the question, everybody's going to think I'm dumb. Oh, people are going to say, what a dumb question, right? So when you constantly, that's a shameful feeling that's going to withhold you from seeking knowledge and you're going to remain ignorant. This shame is not acceptable in Islam. You follow me? This is the wrong shame. Or the shame of, like a person will not go out to seek a livelihood. He's ashamed. Oh, people are going to you know, laugh at me. You know? And I'll give you an example. Like, there was a person, um, there were door-to-door salesmen. Forgive me for, and, 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 and in no way do I mean to disrespect anybody, but it's, this is my, you know, my foolishness or my arrogance. May Allah forgive me, but I wanted to tell you what I'm saying. It relates to this. Like, how is it shame to seek sustenance? This person was a door-to-door salesman. I don't know who made him a door-to-door salesman because he couldn't speak a lick of English. You can see he was South Indian. And he had a, not only an accent, you could not understand it. And I, I can understand, I mean, I'll understand a lot of like lahjas and a lot of dialects I can understand. I didn't understand a single thing this guy was saying. But I was so amazed by his jura, by his courage. And I was like, I, man, I give you props, brother. I'll, just, I'll buy one of whatever you're selling right now. Just I give you props. Just because of your courage. Yeah, because if I'm like, I can't speak properly, I don't know the, the language properly. I'd feel so ashamed. And there's a lot of situations that people are actually ashamed to do this. They're ashamed to earn a living. They're ashamed to go and provide for their family. And they'd rather go beg or they'd rather go ask because it requires a lot of courage. And there's a shame, right? Actually, there should be more shameful to beg. Begging is more shameful to do, right? Not seeking a living. وَلِهَذَا قَالَ اللَّهُ تَعَالَىٰ اللَّهُ لَا يَسْتَحِي مِنَ الْحَقِّ Allah Ta'ala says, Allah is not ashamed of the truth. So here, it teaches us there are certain things we should not be ashamed of. Don't be ashamed of the truth. This is very important. There are certain narrations that attribute shame to Allah. Yes. إِنَّ اللَّهَ حَيٌّ كَرِيمٌ يَسْتَحِي مِنْ عَبْدِهِ Subhanallah. Kama yaliqu bi As is appropriate for Allah's majesty. Verily, Allah is very, and I'm going to say, I'm going to do this. Allah is very shameful, I guess not translatable. I'm going to explain. Allah is very shameful and kind. He is ashamed that his slave should lift up his hands in sincerity, asking from him, and that he should not give him something. It's, a, it's not shame, you get my point? It's this overwhelming generosity. But do you see that he uses the word shame? This yastahi. The same thing that's used for us. Istihya. Ala yastahi. Yastahi min abdihi. Allah is ashamed of his slave that he lifts his hands and that Allah should leave his hands empty. Subhanallah. Which is not really shame like we have shame, but Immense generosity, eternal generosity. You understand how beautiful that is? So Allah has this, but He doesn't have it for the truth, which teaches us we should also have not have shame when it comes to the truth. As here, Sayyidah Aisha praised the women of Ansar. 
What did she say? In a hadith narrated in Bukhari and Muslim, ansar. How wonderful are the women of Ansar? Shame did not hold them back from asking about the matters of religion. How good are the women of Ansar? Shame did not hold them back from asking about the matters of their religion. Such as? Such as the matters of the monthly period. They did not feel ashamed. And they would openly ask Aisha radiallahu anha, Oh Aisha, if I bleed for three days, or if I bleed for seven days, or if I bleed for ten days, and what is this if it comes out of the private part? And they're like really like bad questions that me and you might feel ashamed. They did not feel ashamed. And because of that, now we have our fiqh. Subhanallah. If they were ashamed in those matters of seeking knowledge, we would have never known. And women, till the day of judgment, would have never known. Obviously, the Prophet would have explained because the Prophet would not remain silent about matters that are necessary about purification. But how did we come to even know about those matters? Is that these women did not feel ashamed of the truth. They were asking another woman. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in one, in one instance, one of them was asking uh, the Prophet so what should we do when the period is finished? So then the Prophet said, then you should clean it. And you should purify it. So she said, clean what? He's like, clean it. He's like, clean what? He's like, clean it, for God's sakes, woman. And then Aisha took her to the side and said, clean your private part, you know? Like, you know, like, that's to such an extent that even the Prophet he was like, I'm telling you, purify it. After your thing is done, purify it, clean it, you know. And, and to that extent that even the Prophet was like, good Lord, woman, you're not even understanding what I'm saying. So Aisha took her to the side and said, okay, this is what, what, what he's talking about. Aisha radiallahu anha praised them that because of that, they're not being ashamed of the truth. They did not withhold their questions. And that is why in another hadith narrated, uh, or in another statement that's narrated by some of the scholars, That this deen of ours is not befitting for a pride person, for a proud, arrogant person, and neither a sh shameful person. Yani this deen will not be, will not be implementable. He will not be able to implement this deen. The one who is arrogant, what did I say? The people that are arrogant, they, they don't even have the guts to ask a question about hadith. They made a religion of their own selves. They've, they've, it's brought them this shame. I'll tell you, these people that don't ask about hadith and then they start becoming munkirin in hadith is because they feel ashamed to go to a mullah to ask a question. How can I go to this mullah? He doesn't have a PhD like me. How can I go to this, you know, this person and actually go and ask this guy? Who is this guy? I'm more educated than him. I'm older than him. Whereas I will never hesitate to ask somebody that's younger than me that I know he has more knowledge than me I will not hesitate to ask him but it's showing that this deen of ours will not be suitable for a person who is ashamed and for a person who is arrogant 
Because if you're ashamed, you will not ask questions. If you're arrogant, you're not going to ask questions. And you're going to be left ignorant. You can't practice the deen like that. Not only you can't practice the deen, you will lose your deen. And we see these two people, they lose their deen. They're ashamed of asking, or they're prideful, or arrogant. والحاصل أنه لا ينبغي أن يغلبه الحياء من الناس على حياء من الله. That it shouldn't be that out of the fear of people, out of the shame of people, right? You should be ashamed of Allah. حتى يستحي فيما يضره من أمر دينه أو دنياه. To such an extent, because of the shame of people, you will not, for example, mention something or learn something or ask something about your deen. You know that this is the matter of my deen? You will immediately ask about it. I remember one time, this was very shameful for me. I led Jummah Salat and I didn't have wudu. It was, I didn't have ghusl. And I had forgot. And I led the Jummah. And I was sure that I didn't. Anyways, there was a, it was a, a really, really bad predicament. I asked one of my teachers. The teacher said, get ready for this. You have to announce it at every Jummah for a month that their prayer was not valid and that they should repeat their Salat. Pray Dhuhr for that day. Because that Jummah was not even valid and that Jummah was not correct. And my heart, and I was like, I just, I was, Hafizab, I just, I just graduated. I was just from fresh out of madrasa. And I'm like, don't do this to me. And I did. And people were mad. Uncles wanted to smack me. The uncles were like the most merciless. They came, they wanted to smack me. What is this? You know, what fiqh is this? You know, I said, this is the fiqh of Islam. Ah, you know, Allah Ghafoor Rahim, forget about you. You know, why are you even saying this? And I'm like, okay, you know, I did what I did. And eventually I stopped leading there. But I'm talking about like shame would have held me back from announcing to the people. And on the day of judgment, those people come to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, oh, you don't have a Jummah on your record. What's going on here? There's no Jummah written for the Jummah of Rajab 14, 35. Who knows how Allah will judge? Allah is Ghafoor Rahim. Allah Ta'ala forgives. Allah is not going to you know, throw somebody in Jahannam because of some dumb kid you know, who forgot whatever what happened. You know? But like, you know, I realized after that there was something that I had uh, covered and I should have taken that off because it was... You know, and then water had not reached that area, and it, it was covered, and water had not reached that area, and I, in Ghusl, every place has to get wet. And anyway, it was, it was invalid. I asked around about it. So I made announcements. But if I would have had shame, right, my, my sheikh just mentioned one very, one of my teachers, my, my sheikh tariqat, I didn't ask him, one of my teachers asked him. He said, it's better that you feel bad on this day than feeling bad on that day. That's all they told me. It's better that you just you get a couple of uncles, you know, cussing you out or like giving you the, you know, giving you the, the, the bad, dirty looks 
here than for you to get in trouble with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that why did you do this? And then this is that bad shame. It requires a lot of courage to be in a situation like that and say, hey everybody, I made a mistake. Another thing that I was very afraid of is in big jamaats, I made mistake before and then I did sajday sahu. And my heart was like... And all the uncles are like, what the heck is this guy doing? Was it sajday sahu? The first time I led, led salat and I made a mistake and I was like, second rakat I read tahiyat Allahumma salli ala Muhammad and Allahumma barik Allahumma rabbana atina and I'm like wait a minute where, I'm going too far with this I get back up I realize that you're making ta'khir of a wajib you have to do sajday sahu you understand so in my mind in the last rakat I'm like don't do it don't do the sajda it's gonna make you look so dumb this is like your first salat and you're making a dumb mistake like don't do it that's okay Allah's ghafoor rahim I mean it's just makru tahrimi or something and all these things are going in my mind I said no way man I can't my heart is anyways so this is bad shame this shame is not good shame it's better for you to be ashamed in front of people but not in front of Allah do not fall into a couple of people give you dirty looks. So what? You don't want the wrath of, of Allah or the displeasure of Allah on the Day of Judgment. Mullah Ali Qari, you guys want more or is that enough? A little bit more? Okay, because I can go on, but if you guys, I can stop there. Okay. Mullah Ali Qari says, He goes into the actual spiritual realities of what is more manifestations of haya. And this is very beautiful. There's many levels of haya. One is haya like, okay, I'm ashamed. People are going to look down on me. But there's another levels of spiritual categories of shame. Number one, it's called Hayaul Jinaya. A haya of feeling haya of feeling bad after you have done something. Ka Adam alayhi salam. Lamma kilalahu afirara minna kala la bal haya minka. It's the shame that Adam alayhi salam felt after he ate from the tree that he was not supposed to eat, and then Adam was in paradise, running and covering himself. So Allah said, are you fleeing from me, O Adam? Where can you go from me? Are you running away from me? He said, no, O Allah, I am ashamed. I am ashamed in front of you. So this was a shame of the disobedience. And another beautiful example of this, that this shame that we feel in disobedience is so beloved to Allah. To feel ashamed. There was a person who when he reached his deathbed, he said to his children, Oh my children, how was I as a father to you? So our father, you were so good to us. You never did us any wrong. You always did us good. You took care of us. He said, have I ever done you wrong? He's never. He said, then I have one request for you at this moment of time that I am dying. Will you fulfill that? Anything, oh our father, anything. And do not say no. Otherwise I will, I will disown you. Yes, no, anything, anything. 
He said, when I die, burn me. And when you burn me and I am ashes, take my ashes, throw half of my ashes in the wind and throw the other half of my ashes in the water. Oh, our father, how can we do that? He said, that's it. I have, I have taken an oath upon you and I demand by the haq that I am your father that you have to fulfill this. He said, okay, we will do this because it will, you ask of it. But why? He said, don't ask me why. This is between me and my Lord. The ulama mentioned what sin did, had he committed that he was so, so ashamed. What sin did They said that he was stealing the shrouds from the graves his whole life. He was a shroud thief. And he would dig up the graves and he would steal the shroud off the dead bodies and sell them. And this was his sickness. You can say even he had an addiction or a problem and that's how he made his livelihood. And now he knew that he's dying and desecrating of the dead is without a doubt the worst sin that a person can commit. One of the worst sins. Digging out the bodies of dead people and stealing their shrouds, making them naked and desecrating the deceased. He felt ashamed. That shame is the highest maqam of tawbah. Fast forward, the Prophet ﷺ said that he will be resurrected on the day of judgment. Allah will say, Allah will gather all of his dharat, all of his pieces, and bring him together on the day of judgment and resurrect him. He said, oh my slave, do you not believe that I had power to create and bring you back from every particle that was thrown in the wind and the other half in the, in the water? He said, oh my Lord, I know that you could have done that. Walakin haya mink. But I was ashamed of you, oh my Allah. He says, oh my slave, were you ashamed of me? He says, yes. He said that just as I covered your sin in the life of this world, I will cover you now. This is shame. Allahu Akbar. Can you imagine? This is Hayaul Jinaya. This is narrated by Mullah Ali. This is one of the great manifestations of shame. Do you see what it says? That hadith that Haya is all of deen. To such an extent that his shame of Allah, even though he did a grave sin by having himself burned and then ashes being thrown on one side and then another ash being thrown and committing even a more major sin. But in this one example, another thing to understand, brothers and sisters, when Allah Ta'ala once in a while manifests His mercy and forgiveness in a very special and unique way, this is to remind us that Allah is capable of all things. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that go and do what that guy did. Right? It doesn't mean to go and do whatever that guy did and in the end say, okay, you guys, hey, burn my ashes. It doesn't work that way. It's teaching us that yani, some certain unique incidents like that take place to show us that the, what is the qudrat of Allah and what Allah does. The next one, hayaul karam. The shame of utmost generosity. The shame of utmost generosity. And some of the examples that Mullah Ali Qari gives, I'm okay with that. But this is some of my examples that I give from my side. I think they're more, more suitable. Wallahu alam. He mentions, Mullah Ali Qari mentions the story of Adam. I think that that story of Adam is Allahu alam, but it's a, better that hadith of the person who wanted his ashes to be thrown in the water. That haya of jinaya is better. I don't even think the word jinaya should be used for the prophets, but khair. 
Mulali Qari rahimahullah wa hayaul karam haya of generosity is the haya of the prophet sallallahu the sahaba radiyallahu anhum they would hang out they would come to the prophet's house they would eat with him they would hang out and they would just sit there for hours in the prophet's house and the prophet would feel ashamed to tell them to splat you know get get out of here go home why are you hanging around here just go home you're done eating the prophet would not feel right to say you're hanging out in the prophet's house bothers him right and he feels ashamed out of his generosity to tell you to leave when you eat food, then go and get, get lost. Go, get, go home. Don't just sit around. And your Prophet has his family, he has his wives, the wives are on the other side, and he's sitting with you, and you guys are just sitting there and having your own conversations. He said sometimes they would get so like oblivious. He's, they're like sitting having their own conversations. The Prophet is on the corner. He's like... <clears throat> <clears throat> he's like clearing his throat and they're not even understanding and the Prophet wouldn't say anything out of his intense generosity. This is Hayaul Karam. The shame of generosity. And then there's Hayaul Hishma. The shame of honor. This is the shame of Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib who told Miqdad ibn Aswad, he said, Go ask the Prophet ﷺ what happens if this fluid comes out of a man's private part constantly. Does he have to make ghusl? So go ask, go ask Miqdad, Miqdad, go ask the Prophet ﷺ. So Ali radiallahu was the son-in-law of the Prophet. He's married to the daughter of Rasulullah ﷺ. His honor, his shame and his honor for the daughter of his father-in-law did not allow him to ask this question, which is a matter of fiqh. So he told, hey, Miqdad, go say you have this problem. I don't got this problem. He said, say it. I don't got this problem. He said, I, I have droplets of madhi that's coming out. Prostatic fluid is dripping from my private part. So go ask the Prophet, does this necessitate ghusl? And the reality is it doesn't necessitate ghusl, but he would always make ghusl when this would come out. Right? This haya was a haya of honor. Out of honor, like, what type of loser is this guy? He's going and asking his father-in-law about something like that. You understand? And he, this is hishma. This is honor. Subhanallah. How much, how intelligent they were. How honorable they were. May Allah give us that honor. So you guys see the manifestations of shame. This is things that we should have. Unfortunately, people don't have these things. The shame of considering something insignificant. The shame of considering something to be insignificant. What is this? Like when Musa alayhi salam, that some, some necessity of this world would come about, he says, that Allah asked him, O oh Musa, why don't you ask me more than what you should ask me? 
He said, Ya Allah, I feel ashamed to ask you for these meager things of the world. A piece of bread and, you know, the Anbiya salam lived in great poverty. We know some of the difficulties that Sayyidina Musa salam went through. And Allah said, Oh Musa, what withholds you from asking from me? I know what is in your heart. He said, Ya Allah, I am ashamed of asking such a great king, such meager, measly, worldly things. Give me a piece of bread. He said, Oh, oh Musa, Salni milha ajinik wa Ask me the salt of your bread and ask of me the fodder for your goats because I am the giver. Yani, the shame of considering something to be insignificant. How can I put these insignificant matters before you? Now, all of these are honorable manifestations. I remember there was a student in the madrasa and he was in a lot of pain. He had some issues. He was in a lot of pain. So the teacher was asking, where's the student? I don't see the student. I don't. So then when the student said, Shaykh, he's sick. He doesn't want to come out of the room. So the teacher went and visited him in the room. He said, well, he said, Shaykh, just I have pain. I don't think this is this. It's worthy that I should mention it to you. I'll get better. I don't think it's that we should bother you with our problems. So I need this, this, this shame of considering himself so insignificant that I'm not even, why is this, this is, okay, I'm sick. Everybody gets, everybody gets sick. It's not something so significant that I have to mention it to you. It's not the end of the world. I'll get better. And then the teacher said, no, no, this is not insignificant. How are you going to know? How are you going to get better? You're sitting here. We're going to go get you some medicine. No, it's not a big deal. I'll get better. It's not a, I don't, it's not a big, no, it is a big deal. So I remember that. So this is like a, a shyness that even the teacher became amazed at his, yani, how shy and how respectful he was. And then lastly, Hayaul In'am. The Haya of great bounty. The Haya of great bounty. And that is the Haya that which Allah Ta'ala says, That in Hayyun Kareem, verily Allah is so generous that He feels ashamed that when the slave lifts his hands, that Allah should leave them empty without giving him his, his request. So this is the, the, the it's not we can, we don't call Allah a shame, but for lack of a better translation, I don't know how you could translate it, but it's the shame of great bounty. That Allah is so bountiful, Allah is so benevolent, that Allah feels ashamed to not give. Right. And then lastly, Mullah Ali Qari end, ends with, you know, he has a bab tasawwuf in the end of each chapter, mashallah. Qala ba'duhum at-tahqiqu anna al-haya'a yansha'u an ilmi al-qalbi bi anna allaha raqibun alayhi. Very beautiful thing. Somebody might ask, how can I attain more shame? How can I attain more haya in my heart? He says, Al haya'u yansha'u an ilm al qalbi bi anna allaha raqibun alayh. That haya, it comes from a person that he realizes that Allah is raqib. Allah is a constant watcher over him. And Allah sees everything we do and everything 
we say and everything and all of our actions and our words, Allah is aware of that. That's where haya comes from. So he preserves his internal and external state from opposing Allah's commandments. And then he guards himself from inappropriate statements and actions. And he will then tolerate all calamities so that he does not complain to his Lord. Because he knows that Allah is watching him. And he knows that Allah Ta'ala has brought this calamity upon him. He will not complain to anyone else, only to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَإِذَا تَرَقَّى وَتَحَقَّقَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ أَقْرَبُ الْأَشْيَاءِ إِلَيْهِ إِسْتَحْيِي مِنْ قُرْبِهِ فَوْقَ مَا يَسْتَحْيِي مِنْ رُؤْيَتِهِ And when the reality of Allah's haya becomes so embedded in his heart, then he realizes that Allah is closer to him than his lifeline, than his jugular vein. And it is as if Allah is watching him at all moments. فَيَدْعُوهُ ذَلِكَ إِلَىٰ مَحَبَّتِهِ وَالْخَلْوَةِ مَعَهُ And this constant muraqaba and meditation that Allah sees me and that Allah is a watcher over me, He will feel Allah's presence even at every moment and in every solitude. It, will, it is as if Allah Ta'ala is with him. مُسْتَوْحِشًا مِنَ الْأَغْيَارِ He will even become, He will even want to flee from everything that is non-Allah. مُسْتَلِذًّا بِرُوحِ أُنْسِ الْمَلِكِ الْغَفَّارِ He will be enjoying the enjoyment of that sense of connection with Allah. حَتَّى تَطْلُعَ عَلَيْهِ أَنْوَارُ التَّوْحِيدِ وَتَلْمَعَ فِي سِرِّهِ بَوَارِقَ أَسْرَارِ التَّفْرِيدِ And he will feel the manifestations of Allah's union within his heart. فَيَسْتَحْيِي مِنْ شُهُودِ مَشْهُودِهِ الْمُطْلَقِ فَانِيًا عَنِ الْخَلْقِ بَاقِيًا مَعَ الْحَقِ And he will in reality have become now, his state will have become annihilated from the creation and it will be at one with the Creator because he feels and he knows that Allah Ta'ala is with me and Allah sees me and Allah watches me at all states. May Allah give us the tawfiq to understand what has been said.